Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also CLEAR's President-Elect. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, it's an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Now, for today's episode, this is a preview of a session to be offered at the annual education conference in September. This topic will be uh, will address occupational licensure. Uh, of speaking professions and the impact of constitutional free speech challenges on such laws. I know this is very popular right now. So joining us today are Charlotte Brill, um, Executive Director of the North Carolina Board of Dietitians and Nutrition, and Pepin Andrew Tuma, the Senior Director for Government and Regulatory Affairs at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Uh, We are glad to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to join and talk about this topic. Thanks a lot. Well, we are certainly glad to speak with you. And and let me also thank our listeners for joining us today. So your upcoming conference session deals with navigating free speech challenges to state licensure laws. And you note that a lot of lawsuits recently in the U.S. are drawing on the legal argument that states, uh, you know, uh, violate the free speech rights of unlicensed uh, individuals by requiring that they meet, you know, minimum qualifications and and obtain a license in order to to practice this so-called speaking profession. So let's get right into it, um, Charlotte. Let me start with you. So why are dietetic boards being sued using claims that unlicensed individuals' free speech rights are being violated? What's what's going on with that? Yeah. So generally, those that are attacking these laws, they believe that the these laws are content-based laws that only regulate speech um, and thus should be subject to heightened scrutiny under the First Amendment. So I think as far as w- that there really is like a, a misunderstanding of the profession for those that are attacking specifically dietetics and nutrition laws, um, I, I think they really represent a low, low-hanging fruit to those that seem to be attacking these laws. So when you look at the lawsuits and those that are bringing these forward regarding dietetics and nutrition boards, often you'll hear them say that these, these cases are only about telling people what to buy at the grocery store or dietetics consist of one person talking about nutrition to uh, talk about nutrition or telling someone what to eat. So it's a, it's a profession that's nothing more than just speech. So according to their arguments, individuals claiming their rights have been violated are only seeking to offer the same information that can easily be found in books or online. And so again, it's just speech. That's all this profession is. Um, but what, and what I think they're like actually missing the, what the actual practice of the profession is. And so that's where, um, I think, like I said, I think they've missed the point. Um, When you look at the Florida lawsuit and and that lawsuit addresses their Dietetics Practice Act, um, what the 11th Circuit's examined or what they're they're looking at is the actual practice of the profession, which is much more than speech. So it involves assessing nutrition needs and status and using appropriate data, recommending appropriate dietary regimens, nutritionist support, ordering therapeutic diets, nutrition research, managing nutrition care systems. So there's a lot more to it than just speech itself or telling people, as they say, what to buy at the grocery store. 
I think it's also important to understand the roots of this profession and actually likely most health professions as I think that's something that's also been somewhat misunderstood. So if you actually look back at the roots of this profession itself, so the practice of dietetics and nutrition, it's actually a branch of the practice of medicine. So like if you look back at the earlier definitions in the 1800s even, um, it, it was defined as a, a branch of the practice of medicine comprising the rules to be followed for preventing, relieving, or curing disease by diet. Um, and so when you think about it that way, that the practice of dietetics and nutrition is actually a carve out of the practice of medicine, I think that gives you actually the appropriate framing when you think about these lawsuits. And then when you think about the fact that we have a long tradition in this country of regulating the practice of medicine, to say that when we regulate the practice of dietetics and nutrition is just simply telling people what to buy at the grocery store or um, basic information you can get online, that's not right. It's actually in being a piece of the practice of medicine, if the practice of dietetics and nutrition violates your free speech rights, then in turn, the practice of medicine violates your free speech rights. Well, um, there's also been, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of talk about professional speech doctrine in uh, the case of addressing free speech. Um, so I, I'm not tremendously familiar with the professional speech doctrine. And for our listeners, maybe Pepin, if you could maybe talk a little bit about what that is. Sure. And uh, I'll talk about it first in the give the definition of the professional speech doctrine as it was used by the uh, by the Supreme Court recently in uh, the Nifla v. Becerra case. And because that's sort of the crux of the case, that's the case they're going to rely upon uh, in order to overturn these licensure laws. And um, when talking about the professional uh, uh, professional um, professional speech doctrine, they said that uh, courts that had used it had defined professionals as individuals who provide personalized services to clients um, who are subject to and who are subject to a generally applicable licensing and regulatory regime. So that's what a professional is. You provide personalized services in a, in a, through, uh, and you're licensed by the state. Um, and then they go on to talk about the fact that the courts who had used this professional speech doctrine had um, had uh, used that it represented diminished constitutional protections. And I think it's really important to talk about that context of it because um, there really are two different aspects of the professional speech doctrine as lower courts have looked at it. And it's been a little bit conflated um, recently, both in the Supreme Court to some extent, but certainly in the pleadings for the, for the Florida uh, Del Castillo case, because the professional speech doctrine it is not just about, contrary to what, what the uh, plaintiff's counsel says, is not just about speech that's by any professional. Um, the professional speech doctrine as applied in courts actually has uh, two aspects. The first is um, what level, essentially it's asking what level of scrutiny, what level of uh, should courts use to determine whether or not um, uh, laws uh, impacting professionals are constitutional or not. And, and these there has been one aspect, one of those core groups of cases has said, when you are regulating a, a profession and you are creating the licensure scheme, um, there is, uh, it is, it is allowable that these professions uh, can, uh, the, the government cannot come in and, and there's no free speech issue when it comes to the regulation of these professions. And that, that makes sense. That's a long history of cases going all the way back to, um, 
to, to some of the medical cases in the Supreme Court in the 1800s, uh, West Virginia v. Dent, that, that basically says it's within the government's police power um, you know, the, to protect the health and safety of the public. So the government can do things to protect the health and safety of the public. The real professional speech doctrine, the, the implications of the professional speech doctrine, and this is why it's important, this courts had maybe perhaps mistakenly applied some of those standards that they used for determining that it was okay to license a profession. And they had used those standards in deciding whether or not it was okay for the government to interfere in the uh, professional relationship between a patient and a client or a, or a, or a, a lawyer and a client. Um, I, when I say interfere, I mean, it, you know, if there's a lower level of, uh, of, constitutional um, protection for professional speech, then that means that the government can go in, and, and we've seen in these cases, the government could go in and tell doctors in Florida that um, they do not have the ability to talk to their patients about uh, guns in the house. Um, they could force uh, doctors in other states to, um, to provide information uh, uh, that is uh, irrelevant to the care they're actually providing. Um, and is uh, that that that, uh, that compelled speech is a very particularly uh, crucial issue to consider. And so, really, the 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 problem with the professional speech doctrine is that it was a little bit confusing, uh, applied to multiple uh, scenarios, and and that as applied, what it ended up being was it was sort of a uh, this, the standard was able to be used for for the for the state governments to be able to interfere in that 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 personal professional. Um, relationship. But I think the real, so, so that, that's the way, that's the issue I'd say is, is the professional speech doctrine dead? Um, sure. Uh, under NIFLA. I, 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 I am not concerned about that because I think that it's been too um, uh, bastardized and watered down by, by opponents of it and, and, and opponents of licensure that they're trying to make you think everything is professional speech. Um, I'll just say that that's, that's sort of where we are right now. Um, the, but I want to I want to reiterate that courts have repeatedly, time and time again, and, and historically, they've not they've not said that uh, anywhere that when it comes to the health and safety of the public, um, uh, that professional speech um, can't be. The, the, I'm sorry, professional speech within the confines of the regulation of the conduct of the profession, the practice of the profession, can't be regulated. And and, and I do want to say one thing here about um, about that is that we. We sometimes there's a little bit of a confusion around what an occupation is versus a profession, um, and I think that that's a that, that's an important distinction because when you when you hear some of these folks talk uh, who are the who are suing to overturn these license laws, they often talk about occupations and not professions, and I think that it's a, an important distinction that I, um, we can go into in uh, a little bit later if 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 uh, we have time to do that. That's great, and I think very helpful um, for that. Now, I know before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about this, but you know, the Florida lawsuit, uh, the Del Castillo um, uh, versus uh, Florida Department of Health. Um, you know, the groups that are are suing are pretty adamant that there is a lot of new legal precedent around free speech and regulated professions. Um, so, are they are they right? Um, and if so, do they apply to licensure laws as? they assert. So Charlotte, if we start with you and, and then Pepin, I'd like your thoughts on this as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is already some of what Pepin was getting into and in talking about the professional speech doctrine and that. So it's, I don't know that it's new law, but it was a clarification that 
the Supreme Court provided in the case that he was referring to, uh, I'll refer to as NIFLA. In that case, the Supreme Court, you know, clarified that they've never recognized the professional speech doctrine. And so as such, licensed professionals do not lose their First Amendment rights when providing guidance or treatment to clients. Um, what NIFLA made clear is that when, you know, and again, this is sort of what Pepin was already saying, is that when professionals are subject to content-based laws that depend on what they're speaking, compelling them to say or not say something, that those laws are subject to First Amendment strict scrutiny. Those laws should be looked at much closer. Um, so just as the professional's speech to the public is protected under the First Amendment, so is their personalized speech to a client. NIFLA, the, the case that they seem to think changed everything, basically just affirmed that there's no persuasive reason for treating professional speech as a unique category that's exempt from ordinary First Amendment principles. And as such, government regulation of licensed professional speech in practice of the profession is subject to strict scrutiny, meaning the regulation must be narrowly tailored and the government must have a compelling reason to regulate such speech. But again, I don't think that's new law. I think that's just a clarification. What NIFLA also made clear though, that I think um, is important as we go forward and as we look at the professions and whether licensing laws violate free speech or not is that um, they have afforded less protection for professional speech in two circumstances. So where a law requires professionals to disclose factual non-controversial information in their commercial speech. And the one that's more relevant here is where states regulate a professional's conduct that incidentally impacts their speech. So if we look at this Del Castillo case, um, the appellate court like recognized that the NIFLA holding made clear that the professional speech doctrine was not a valid doctrine but it recognized that it really didn't impact their holding in that case um, because what they were looking at was the regulated conduct. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that case, I think in a few minutes, but, but in, in looking at when they were, they're examining, what does this law do? They're examining the conduct and all the things that are elements of that profession really are conduct with that incidental impact in, on speech. And so they fit into what the NIFLA case said is something that um, they have afforded less protection to, or it's looked examined at under that lower standard of um, rational basis under the health safe under the state's ability to protect the, the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens. Pepin, you want to add to that? Our thought, additional thoughts. I think that you did a really great job there, and all I'd add is that um, you know somewhere around the, the new president, there's the way that this has been built up in in in. Uh, tackling or, or trying to overturn the licensure laws, uh, when these, these interests have, have sort of cherry picked uh, various free speech cases over the last decade or so. And, and uh, you know, I think as court watchers have identified this Supreme Court, this this court is very interested in um, in preserving and, and expanding free speech uh, protections and in clarifying free speech doctrines. They've gone further in commercial speech and, and, in, and, and in areas of professional speech around, uh, around uh, who can make coffins in Louisiana and uh, whether you need a license to, uh, to be a tour guide in, in Washington, DC. So the, 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 this, this, in many different ways, this court has indicated an interest in expanding free speech rights. But so what they've done is they've, they've sort of cherry picked some language from a bunch of different cases and created almost what they perceive to be a, a uh, a very clear path forward. Um, but I think that cherry picking fails to recognize some of the inherent elements that Charlotte was, was noting, which is that there's a consistent set of holdings around the ability to 
um, continue to regulate professions. And so when it comes to whether or not there's, yeah, for sure, there's been a lot of new legal precedent around free speech and, and regulated professions, but not a lot of new uh, 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 jurisprudence or, or new legal precedent specific to the question of whether professions as opposed to occupations um, uh, are able to uh, are able to be uh, re require a license to practice them uh, by the by the state. And I would just okay. add, or like as Pepin was saying, like I think drawing on that, like they on the side of those that are attacking these laws, like they try to make it seem like it's very evident that what these cases hold. But all the cases that they point to, none of them are addressing licensure laws of a profession, which I think distinguishes like the, the different holdings on that level of, are we really examining this regulation of professional conduct? There's, uh, you know, there's, there's elements of those cases that they can, that they can apply, but none of those cases are directly on point with the discussion we're having. So I think I know the answer to this question that I'm going to ask, but because um, just from our conversation right now, but um, this clearly isn't just about dietitians, right? Uh, you know, other professions, you know, should they be concerned about what's going on? And, and Pepin, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I would just say, uh, yes, I think a lot of professions should be concerned what's going on. Um, the uh, a couple of things I'll say is that this, this is a very the, the, the interest groups that are filing these uh, these lawsuits and have had some success in overturning, as I mentioned, um, some of the occupational uh, licensure requirements in tour guides and um, hair braiders and and uh, and coffin makers and things like that. But but not but the, the dietitians is sort of as 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 you mentioned, Sharla, the low hanging fruit, perhaps of the of the of the professions, in particular the healthcare professions, and that's because um, you know if if you want to read some of these stat the the dietetic statutes not holistically, if you just want to look at certain elements of it without seeing the exemptions and the way in which states are enforcing them, I think you might see that uh, that there that there is some uh, there is some aspect of the uh, of some of the, the wording of the statutes that might appear on their face to be um, potentially problematic. And so I think dietetics provided a, a, in some of these states a pretty ripe, uh, ripe opportunity for these uh, interest groups to, to take the next step on their, on their ultimate goal, which they'll freely tell you, uh, which is to eliminate uh, regulation for both professions and occupations across the country um, as part of um, their desire to uh, minimize uh, or remove uh, most government regulations um, from both commerce and, 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 and general interactions uh, among Americans. So the, the, that the, I would say absolutely. Um, we've seen uh, recent cases in Mississippi with surveyors in Texas with veterinarians. Um, if you had asked me if they could have found a way to make veterinarian uh, care about free speech, I would have not been able to come up with it, but they are, uh, they, they are smart lawyers and so they did. And in fact, they were even successful there. And so I think that anybody, any profession in which speech provides a uh, I, I used to say a, a, a significant, but I think even a, you know, a, a, a decent part of, of, of the work that they do, uh, elements of your licensure laws, if not your entire licensure laws, when it comes to things like uh, counselors, psychologists, um, other talking professions, and then I think um, uh, other professions where speech is a, is a big 
big piece of that um, aspect. I, I, I think I, I don't I don't want to misquote him, but I, uh, the, the, the lead attorney in a lot of these cases has specifically said he doesn't think doctors, unless they're performing surgery, should necessarily need to be licensed. I mean, that's a pretty revolutionary idea. We've been licensing doctors for a long time in this country, and there are lots of good reasons to do that to ensure that uh, qualified people are practicing and, and, uh, and that incompetent people are not and that uh, you know, and the public can, can differentiate. Um, it is a revolutionary proposal that they're making and uh, and and they've had some success at it. So Sharla, let me ask you this, and I think this kind of touches on kind of what Pepin was getting at, but but I guess in ultimately what does it mean to to practice a profession? Um, and and are you saying that you know practicing a, a, a profession is engaging in in conduct or not? Um, so what are your thoughts there? Well, so I want to be clear, you know, that from the, that NIFLA case that we know that laws regulating the speech of licensed professionals are not exempt from First Amendment scrutiny. Um, but that holding is that, you know, irrelevant to laws regulating the standards for entry to profession and defining the conduct that is the practice of a profession. When you look at the definition of the practice of a profession, and I think for the most part, any true profession. So, you know, Pepin was trying to distinguish there's a difference between occupations and professions. There's the learn, study, the training, all those things that go into it. But when you look at the definition of the practice of a profession, um, what I would venture to say is that I think what you would see for most of these laws is that the profession as defined in the Practice Act involves a significant amount of conduct with only an incidental impact on speech. So is speech part of the practice of a profession? Most well, certainly for most professions it is, but it's likely incident to the conduct. Um, so for sure you need to look at each profession individually, but when you do, I think you'd, what you determine is like what the 11th circuit did in the Del Castile case, um, that you're actually, what the law is actually defining is the practice of the profession. And, um, in North Carolina, we devise for our profession here, so dietetics and nutrition, our board, what we deem guideline A. And this is a guidance document for unlicensed persons that are not otherwise exempt under our law. And here we emphasize that to be practicing dietetics, one has had to form a professional client relationship with the purpose of assessing individual nutritional needs and then developing a specific nutrition plan for the purpose of treating or managing a medical condition. So like Florida's law, nutrition assessment here in North Carolina involves the evaluation of nutritional needs based on many factors uh, and ordering of labs. Nutrition counseling is not just speech, but it's rather it's advice or assistance to individuals or groups on nutrition intake that involves integrating information from the nutrition assessment with other information. Um, and it, that is consistent with therapeutic needs. So I, you know, it just goes back to this idea that practicing the profession you're forming that professional client relationship. You're considering the affair, the affairs of the client. You're exercising professional judgment. You're at, you're acting in a fiduciary capacity in the sense that you are have to do what's in the best interest of your client, not in best interest of yourself. And so I, you know, I think all of that in the actual practice is all conduct that incidentally impacts speech. And in my mind, I think in like for a lot of people a profession that might come to mind or did to me this morning when I was just thinking about this was, you know, counseling. It seems to be a little, maybe like low hanging fruit, like our profession in the sense that what comes forth 
is speech. Like you're, you're talking to someone um, in that setting. But when I looked at the definition of counseling in North Carolina this morning, I mean, it actually is much more, you know, it's assisting individuals, groups, and families through the counseling relationship by evaluating and treating mental disorders and other conditions through the use of a combination of clinical mental health and human development principles, methods, diagnostic procedures, treatment plans, and other psychotherapeutic techniques, et cetera. So I just get at this idea that, you know, the profession does involve speech. Most professions do, but the actual regulation of the, what is the profession is so much more than just the speech that comes forth. It, it, that, I think that's great, Charlotte. And I, I want to just add one little, little uh, thing onto it just to, to wrap it up, which is that a person, a professional, and this and, and Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court years ago has, has sort of gave some examples around this. A person who is a professional could very well be be do things that uh, act or so do do things in, in other parts of his life where he's not acting in that professional capacity. Um, and so, you know, you could be a you know, uh, you could be a, a, a doctor and practicing your profession um, at a clinic working with a patient. But if you go and, and you make a and you make a speech to a group of people um, talking or uh, encouraging uh, a certain area of medical thought to be rejected. Um, you, may, you, you may not be practicing medicine. And so I think that there's a notion that I think is really important here, which is that um, just because it something touches on a field of medicine or a field of a professional, uh, a professional field doesn't mean that just because you're talking about it means that you uh, are practicing the profession. And so to the extent that um, some dietitians do, in fact, uh, encourage people to buy certain products or, or give advice about what products to buy at a grocery store does not mean that everybody who purchases or is encouraging people to buy certain products at a grocery store. Um, uh, you know, I, I think of Costco and the and the folks who sit out there recommending samples um, and encourage you to purchase their products. I don't think anybody could really think that that is the practice of dietetics. And that's because um, that 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 key element there is the existence of a relationship with some fiduciary or quasi fiduciary capacity and so you know when you're in it this is this is the same sort of thing we hear all the time with the straw man arguments about oh well you know uh this is the same same sort of advice or or that you could get in any book or on any tv show and you're like yes true but when i'm reading a book or or watching uh you know a, a doctor show on tv i'm not thinking that these doctors know about my personal condition, are uh, making judgments about it, and are providing me with individualized advice on how to treat or, or manage my diseases or medical conditions. You know, I, I, there, there's, in, in Kentucky, there's, there's, there was a, a case brought against a guy who was uh, doing sort of a Dear Abby's and Landers type column, and, uh, and they tried to prosecute him for the pr uh, practice of psychology. Um, now, I admit that I have not read every pleading in that case, uh, but I will tell you that I think it's You'd be pretty hard pressed to think that um, that that by writing a letter in and not ensuring any uh, uh, just a letter in and not not you know they know nothing else about you other than what you've written that that somehow this person is practicing psychology uh, in the same context or in the same way that that the uh, psychology uh, practice act is intended to cover and I think that's what we have to be really care uh, careful of here is not to allow um, these straw man arguments about the the, hype, the hypothetical that doesn't really exist, whether that's the, we, we need to talk about that that's not what practicing professionals. I mean, as Charlotte and I have talked about it a million times, literally the word practice in practicing a profession implies conduct, 
right? I mean, it, uh, there is part of that fiduciary relationship is you do not speak without processing it through the knowledge that you have accumulated over having that, that patient or client, uh, th their personal experience, and then how it is best going to be able to be delivered and what needs to be delivered. That the, the, whether it's the existence of a diagnosis, the, the intake of, a, of an assessment, the, the, the processing part, the use of your brain that was trained to do these things, that, it, that there is conduct. Um, and, and so I think that that's, those are sort of important aspects that, and, and, and to that point, just to underline something Charlotte said, I think the, the, the NIFLA court did not really get into what, a, I mean, they, they used a definition of what a profession is, but they did not, they did not get into what it, uh, a, a good definition of what a profession is, because they did leave off really important elements of, 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 of professions, and they sort of let it be said, and, and I guess for good reason, because some states have allowed this too, let professions include everything from uh, doctors all the way down to, um, uh, you know, uh, certain occupations that like tour guides or, or, or hair braiders that um, where there's much less of a, um, uh, much less of a, uh, an obvious or tenable or, or, or proven uh, connection to uh, the protection of the health or safety of the public, which is why states are, are licensing professionals to begin with. You know, maybe I was just destined to be in regulation or, you know, a chief compliance officer because I, uh, this brings up memories of mine from high school. I was sitting on the, the bench my senior year of uh, the soccer team. I was their manager. I couldn't play soccer, I played baseball and, and basketball. And um, I remember the referee coming over saying, you know, uh, coach, you've got a, a guy here with a broken arm. And I'm like, you know, is this referee a, a doctor? Um, how would he know? And of course, the guy's arm was a compound fracture. It was clear it was broken. But it's almost like we have to give that disclaimer of, well, I'm not an attorney, but before we say anything, um, but let me ask your story. Lynn, like that, I think that that hits home of like that person wasn't practicing as a doctor. You hadn't formed that professional client relationship. Like that's not the practice. Like that's that key difference there of like, that's why it's not the practice. It's not he wasn't making a diagnosis in the context of that professional client relationship. He's just throwing out, you know, his two cents on the fact that it looks like this guy's arms broken and that's not the practice of a professional. I just remember getting upset about it. Cause like, you know, I was, you know, planning to go to medical school at that point in time. And I was like, well, you know, he's not a doctor and uh, sure enough. Yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's definitely broken. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, free speech is, is hugely important. Um, but Pepin, I guess, let me ask you this, you know, why shouldn't this be, you know, strict scrutiny? So, so, uh, you know, I, let me say here, I, I, I want to reiterate that I'm speaking in my personal capacity and not speaking on behalf of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't, you know, whether, so, so we, our, our views may not necessarily be the same, but I think that the, the key is here um, to, to, to get back to what I said at the very beginning, which is, um, we need to be, when it comes to the government interfering in, uh, you know, or the government restricting speech, it's particularly the content of speech. Um, I think that it needs, I think that strict scrutiny maybe should, maybe should apply, um, that lower levels, um, lower levels have been problematic. And so let me, let me explain what a little bit, what I mean by that. One, I'm, I'm, I, I strongly, I, I believe in free speech very much. I think it's incredibly important. It's obviously foundational to um, 
to, to the United States of America and our ability to um, uh, be a, a, a particularly functional and, and, and free country. And I, from my own personal experience, have uh, gotten myself out of more than a few uh, minor and major scrapes because of our trusty First Amendment. Um, and, and so I, I think it's absolutely a essential element of, and, and strong standards within it. But, you know, to give you a little, just a couple of examples, there's a, you know, there are, when, there's a case in, there was a case in Virginia about uh, uh, fortune teller regulation. And that court uh, let us know that, that the county that was regulating the, the fortune tellers, the county, when they went to court said, we don't think uh, that, that fortune telling is deserving of any First Amendment protection whatsoever. Nothing like they would nothing. The government should just be able to, you know, it's deceptive. The government should be able to shut it down. Well, you know, I, that that so that's one that's one side of the continuum is the government saying, no, we should be able to do it, uh, force them to say whatever we, we want and prevent them from saying whatever we want. That's one. And then all the way on the other side, you have um, you have uh, the Institute for Justice and, and other groups that are that are following these lawsuits. And they're saying, um, you know, in every circumstance, uh, there, there should have to be a, there should have to be the strict scrutiny that that um, important government interest and, and narrowly tailored laws to achieve it. And the, the problem with that is, is that when you had the when you had the the fortune teller laws, they were trying to allow the rate, you know, their, their standard, their weak standard was ended up ended up being putting us in a situation where when the government wanted to, because they had a weak standard that applied to professions, um, when the government wanted to regulate other things like to compel speech about uh, uh, um, pregnancy clinics in the states that recognize it, the government could do that because there was a lower level of, 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 of protection for certain uh, in certain aspects. But the, and so they never got to the question because uh, it was foreclosed because they could they, they found they could regulate anything. They never got to those, the question in those in those states about maybe that maybe there is a real role for the government to 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 to, to fit in because they could just found that the government could always fit in. The problem, though, is that with the if you take that that there should always be strict scrutiny anytime there's any speech anywhere, no matter what, even if it is incidental to the, the practice of a profession. Uh, even if it's incidental to that, you end up in situations like you, you would be where um, you, in order to get to the place where they can say, we don't think it's appropriate for the government to compel uh, physicians to say certain things that they don't believe in, and we don't think it's appropriate to prevent physicians from talking to their patients about guns, which is a perfectly reasonable, and I think I agree with it, uh, place to get to. They they would, in order to get to that place and just have their blanket uh, strict scrutiny everywhere uh, standard every time speech is mentioned, they end up throwing, uh, this may be their intention, but throwing away reasonable um, regulations of conduct. And so uh, to answer your question now in a much shorter way um, than I just did, I think that strict scrutiny is probably appropriate for all all real genuine speech and so in, in situations in which a um in which you have a the regulation of a profession and then for dietitians for example and then once you are a dietitian and you are in a professional relationship with your patient i absolutely think that it should be strict scrutiny for uh governments either uh compelled speech or 
um, uh, speech that they would that, that a dietitian might be prevented from sharing. So you know, I, and I can think of examples. Um, a, a government might want to compel you to only give their messages that are contained in the dietary guidelines. Um, well, I think that that. Well, I can tell you a lot of our members would have big problems with that, with, with some aspects of that. Only, only the, you know, narrowly saying these are the only things you can say. And, and, and that should be subjected to scrutiny. Or, or that uh, if it's preventing you from talking about something that maybe, maybe the government really, really uh, doesn't, doesn't want Americans for some reason to, uh, uh, to eat um, uh, all vegetarian diets because they really like our, our, our uh, our, our meat industry. Well, if they said you can't talk about all vegetarian diets, I think that that's another issue, which is just, it's, it's ludicrous to suggest that, um, that that's a, that that's a, that that's, that the government should have that role, but you only get to the place where you can make those decisions. If you get to the place where you recognize that the government has that longstanding role in determining what the, uh, the generally applicable qualifications are in order to practice a profession. And no one's saying here, no one's saying that that uh, a person that Lord knows I'm not a dietitian and I go around talking about what people ought to eat. I have been doing it my whole life. Um, sometimes, usually, mostly in a nice way and an encouraging way. But you know, I think you know, recommending, suggesting for this against this. That's that's that, that that's just who we are. But that nobody's going to mistake my conversation for uh, telling somebody that Starburst is the best candy in the world. Um, or that we should, uh, you know, uh, maybe not eat as many potato chips or drink as much soda as folks do, that, that, that somehow that is actually representing uh, the practice of a profession. And, and I think that what we end up seeing too often is that in, in their attempt to, um, in their attempt to, quote unquote, simplify uh, First Amendment law, um, what we really know is that one of the biggest reasons, if not the reason they're doing this, is to get rid of the regulation that's so important for the protection of the public in the first place. Well, where, where do we stand with the Florida case now, um, Pepin, and, and I guess what's next from that? Yeah, so the, 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 the Florida three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit upheld um, based upon the prior precedents of the 11th Circuit, uh, which was uh, the, the case about the, the guns uh, that I mentioned. And, uh, and based upon that precedent said, uh, uh, they found in favor of the, of the, of the existing Dietetics Practice Act. Um, but they, they, again, they found it just simply because they were bound by prior precedent to do so. Um, then the, 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 uh, the plaintiff's lawyer did, they, they did, a, they did appeal. Um, they sought a petition for rehearing. So they tried to get the entire 11th circuit to hear it, which they, they, uh, did not do. But I, I think this case is being, uh, unquestionably, they're going to, uh, they're going to move to a petition for, uh, for cert at the Supreme Court. I think this issue is very, very important to them personally. Um, it's, it's sort of one of the core, uh, their, their core uh, beliefs. And, and so even though the, the 11th Circuit, I think has uh, even set down their mandate and, and, and finished their work, um, I fully expect that within the next, uh, before the end of the summer, we will see the, uh, this decision being appealed to the Supreme Court. Now, whether the Supreme Court chooses to take it is an interesting, that'll be an interesting decision. Um, we're certainly, uh, at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and, and I, I, I look forward to working with other professions in, in doing so, is to clarify some of these things we've been talking about today for the Supreme Court in amicus briefs. I think that this is really a, an important matter that, that really needs to be, um, we, we can't let misrepresentations of professions, uh, the nature of a profession or uh, the nature of licensure to, uh, uh, to be, to be 
adopted by the Supreme Court if, if they're not uh, truly uh, familiar with how, how these things work and the historical relationship of professions to, uh, to licensure. Perfect. Well, so what happens if, if the Supreme Court decides occupational licensure laws to the extent that they regulate speech are subject to this higher level of examination called strict scrutiny? So, um, Charlotte, what are your thoughts there? So, you know, if they go that route, like if it gets to the Supreme Court and that ultimately becomes the holding, then professional licensure laws that are you know, regulating entry to the profession and setting the standards for what it is to practice, they would be examined under strict, that strict scrutiny standard. And so as such, under that standard, these laws have to demonstrate that they're narrowly tailored to address a compelling state interest. So I think, you know, with that being the standard, we're not fearful. Like, I think there's a lot of professions that will just meet that standard, even if that is the standard. I think there are a lot of the professional regulations out there are narrowly tailored um, to address a compelling state interest. I have to believe with our longstanding history in our country of regulating the practice of medicine, that it meets that definition. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's concerning when you look at the Fifth Circuit case of Hines, which regulates, you know, it's about the practice of veterinary medicine, that you know, they're, they're not just seeing that, that they, you know, or that that is the question that they'll be addressing, I guess. Um, it, it got, it is getting pushed forward there. So, you know, I, that is the standard that states will be held to. Now, something particular to our profession and particularly in North Carolina, um, I think we, you know, going back to that original question of like, why were we more susceptible to these attacks and that in North Carolina, um, you know, our law prior to 2018, we regulated nutrition care services. So a pretty broad definition um, that encompassed all levels of nutrition care. So, you know, I think it's important here to note again that, you know, we're Peppins with the association. I'm the director of the licensing board. Um, so our, our views may be somewhat different than the professional associations. But for us, we take seriously our duty to safeguard the public health, safety, and welfare of our citizens by regulating the practice of those that are engaged in the practice of dietetics and nutrition. And so when we looked at our law, this was back in like 2014, when we started considering even changing our law, um, we, we asked this question um, about, you know, our law and how, what exactly we were regulating. Um, and so the question that we posed to ourselves was, are we requiring a license for services that present a demonstrable risk of harm? And if not, then in, you know, in, then we're actually probably over-regulating um, because we're limiting the public's act and not meeting our mission because we're limiting the public's access to care by requiring a license for services that don't actually require the level of training and qualifications that our licensees have. And so, you know, after examining that, we took that opportunity to amend our law. And so after uh, multiple years of work, um, we narrowed our law to, you know, to focus on medical nutrition therapy. So before where it was really broad and regulated all nutrition care, we, folk, we, we narrowed that to say we regulate the practice of medical nutrition therapy, um, a service for which we know that if you don't have adequate training, you can do serious harm. And so for us, I think, at, you know, like now when I look at this question, the question you asked that if we you know, the strict scrutiny becomes a standard. I don't know that we would have met that standard before under our definition prior to 2018. But when I look at our law today, knowing that it's narrowly focused on medical nutrition therapy, and again, I would note that 
the practice of dietetics, that medical nutrition therapy, I mean, having the word medical in it, in, the, in and of itself, it stems from the practice of medicine. I have to believe that I'm confident, I guess, that our law would um, withstand that examination of whether or not um, it meets that standard. And so, you know, I think that's something that all boards should be taking the opportunity to think about, not just because necessarily of this case even, but just because, again, you always got to keep in mind the mission of licensing boards is to protect the public. And so whenever you're over-regulating, you're not meeting your mission at, to the fullest extent. And so you want to keep it really narrowly tailored. Um, that's in line with that the strict scrutiny standard, but I think it's also in the best interest of the public. And so that's work that you could be doing now, regardless of whether or not the law changes. That's a great point. I, I, I just want to add in one thing, which is that I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Charlotte. I would just say that one of the things we've already seen, as you noted, in the Heinz case is that uh, when the Supreme Court sort of opens a door or makes a little bit of a clarification, uh, sometimes what we see are circuit courts or district courts running a little bit wild. Um, and so, you know, even though, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't appear to completely, uh, you know, open up or make clear that, that strict scrutiny is required for in the Fifth Circuit for uh, the, the Supreme Court didn't say that it was going to be required, uh, that strict scrutiny for the actual decision of, 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 of whether a license is required to do something or not. Um, you know, already what we're seeing is courts interjecting themselves into the questions or into the licensure laws around, well, is this aspect of licensure law is the requirement that a veterinarian uh, sees uh, all of the animals, uh, I was going to say in person, but that's not obviously the right term. Um, is that requirement uh, valid? And so even if, uh, you know, they, there's a, and as I expect that a lot of other, these laws are going to be able to be uh, supported, I think there'll still be a lot of challenges and there may be aspects of the laws that get knocked down as courts become a little bit more aggressive and assertive and and uh, and, uh, and and action oriented. Well, and I also think it's concerning. I mean, I guess it's along the lines of your point of like, potentially, if it goes this direction, like the chaos that that potentially opens up to the extent that, you know, we are a country that's been developed on this dependence of, you know, being that you don't look up your dentist or your, you know, Maybe that's not the best example in terms of speech, but your therapist or not someone in terms of their qualifications and everything to see, you know, whether they are a qualified practitioner and to know that that's really the aims of these lawsuits is to see more deregulation in terms of the professions. I think, you know, thinking deeper about like what the consequences of that, what that could look like as a country and that we just weren't built on that, that we we are dependent on the state saying this one's person's qualified to practice. Um, we rely on that heavily and how many facets of your life you do that. Um, I think it's just worth considering. Well, excellent. I think uh, this gives us some, some great information and we look forward to hearing more about this uh, during the presentation in, in September at the conference. So, so thank you, Sharla and Pepin for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, it has certainly been our pleasure. And I'd also like to continue this conversation on clear communities. So the podcast episode will be posted there and you can reply with your comments. Now, here are a couple of questions to think about and maybe pose um, in the communities. But how do you view your profession or the profession you regulate? Is the regulation of a profession the regulation of conduct with an incidental impact on speech 
or is it simply a content-based law regulating speech? And consider this, if your occupational licensure law was subject to strict scrutiny, meaning it must meet the test of being narrowly tailored to address a compelling uh, state interest, would your law meet that standard? So please share your comments on Clear Communities. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. This podcast is a great way to connect with our clear audience, but I think it, we're also really looking forward to getting back to our in-person conference in September. That conference, again, will be uh, September 14th through the 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the first time the conference has actually been held in, in Clear's home state. And conference and session details are already available online, and we hope you'll consider joining us in September. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. If you're new to the Clear Podcast, please subscribe to us. Uh, you can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this uh, podcast episode, uh, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners like you to find us. Feel free to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming online programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. Uh, she is our content coordinator and editor for this program. And once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I look forward to speaking to you again very soon.